0: And so I, like I mentioned before, I work for Young Life. I'm going to Fuller Seminary, um, fellow congregant here at New Life Downtown, and excited to share with you guys a little bit this morning. Um, and so we've been talking about the table because the Lord's Table is the kind of the focal point of our worship service here at New Life Downtown. Um, and then also the way that we can connect with one another in this community is through meal groups. And so the table is really central to who we are as a congregation at New Life Downtown, and so we thought, hey, let's, let's talk about that at Sunday school. Um, and so I'm going to give you just kind of a brief synopsis of where we're headed this morning, and then we're going to kind of dive in. And um, So the first thing we're going to do is a very, very brief review <laughs> of what Andrew shared a couple weeks ago, what Brian shared last week. Um, and then the kind of the focus and the question that I want us to, um, to be thinking about this morning is what about food and the common table is significant to us as the people of God? Uh, food and meals are all over Scripture, uh, from the Old Testament to the New. Brian and I were actually joking this morning about how um, in, in Genesis, uh, the fall of man is kind of ushered in by a meal, by food. And then the culmination of all things being restored by the Lord is the wedding feast, um, so the meal is a big deal for us as followers of Christ. Um, and so kind of the, the three things that I've been ruminating on as I've been studying this myself, uh, mostly in the New Testament, and then as I've been reading some theologians and some other writers, is, um, is that uh, the, the common table or table fellowship is incarnational, it's sacrificial, and it's communal. And so those are the three things we're going to kind of walk through this morning, um, there are so many things that we could talk about when it comes to the common table, but just for the sake of time, um, we're going to dive into that. And then if we have time, I'd love for us to take a look at Jesus' feeding miracle. It's actually mentioned six times in the gospel, um, but we're going to look at the Matthew version of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and I'm going to ask you guys to kind of get into groups and talk about how these three things play out in that story. Um, but then, at the very end, we're going to have my friend Brianna Pepin share her story. Um, and She has a pretty phenomenal story uh, as far as walking through um, some pretty crazy things that um, have happened in her life when it comes to food and the common table and meals and digestion and all of that. So I really wanted her to share her story because um, she's not the only person in our congregation where the meal isn't a very comfortable place. Um, and if a lot of us are meal group leaders, A lot of us are leaders in some capacity in the kingdom. And so uh, it's important for us to have eyes for people like Brianna. That's why I wanted her to share. All right, so a quick review. Andrew, a couple weeks ago, talked about basically 2,000 years of church history when it comes to communion, and he squeezed it all into about an hour. And he did a phenomenal job. Um, And so he talked about kind of the four most common views of communion. Uh, the first being the symbolic view. Remember, he was talking about kind of the, the low church view, low on the like, liturgical scale, not like low as in this is bad church and this is good church. It's just low on the liturgical scale um, with the symbolic view and Zwingli, um, one of the reformational um, <laughs> patriarchs, I guess, and his Anabaptist counterparts um, really hold on to this view. Then we've got spiritual presence, um, which is really kind of, Ambiguous, it just says somehow the presence of Jesus is in the elements, um, and that's Calvin's kind of perspective, and then consubstantiation, that there's a withness um, within the elements when we take them at the Lord's table, and then transubstantiation, which is more the Catholic view and talks about how the bread and the wine are literally becoming the body and blood of Jesus. They still look like bread and wine, but somehow, miraculously, mysteriously, they're turning into the body and blood of Christ. Um, So I don't know where you fall in line there or if you have some kind of completely different theology, but again, Andrew did a good job of walking through that. And then Brian did an awesome job last week of talking about or trying to articulate um, the mystery of the Lord's table. And he talks about two different dimensions, the first being the vertical, what happens between us and God at the Lord's table, and then the horizontal, what happens between us and each other. Um, And not just us as, um, like, the New Life Downtown congregation, but us as the church across time, across cultures, across the world. Um, And so we're going to kind of keep moving into that horizontal direction this morning. Um, And again, touch on this this question, what about food and the common table is significant to us as the people of God? What is it about the meal? What is it about breaking bread with one another around a table um, that is important for us? as people who are following Jesus and learning how to walk together through life. Um, One of the things that I've come to notice, I I shared with you guys a little bit the first week when we were doing a little bit of our our intros and kind of bios. um, I've noticed that food and sharing meals are such an important part of what it means to be human. Um, I talked to you guys a little bit about how my dad was a chef um, and that food is really a love language in our family. Um, and we sat down for a meal together almost every single day growing up. Um, and so he was a chef. He loved to cook. My uncles used to tease me and my sister all the time when we were growing up. They used to say, oh, you know, whoever you end up marrying is going to have to shell out a ton of money because all you're going to want to do is eat filet mignon and crab legs because that's the kind of food that we were able to eat growing up. And we didn't have a lot of money, which is great. My dad just, he was creative. Um, and, um, and he just, he loved to cook. And so food was a huge part of our family growing up. Um, my sister, it's so funny, like she could tell you what, kind of, what, what cuts of meat she preferred by the time she was in like second grade. Um, and then my brother, he's also a chef now, so I'm the oldest of three kids. I've got my sister Erin, my brother Mitch, um, and my, my brother's now a chef, um, kind of following the family line. Um, and my dad actually passed away when I was 11, and so my brother being a chef is actually really kind of a heartwarming thing for our family. But I remember this one time he was still sitting in a high chair, so he's maybe two or three years old, um, and we are getting up after the end of dinner, and all of us are bringing dishes into the kitchen, and we come back out, and Mitch had crawled from his high chair onto the middle of the table, and is just sitting there, and had taken two handfuls of butter, and is just sitting there eating butter, (laughs) and which warms my heart because I think butter is like the best thing in the entire world, Um, right? Julia Child and I, I think, would get along. Um, (laughs) So um, here's what I want you guys to do, just for the sake of warming up our hearts and our minds and thoughts. um, I want you guys to kind of gather with a few folks around you, and just for fun, share with each other um, one of your favorite foods or a favorite meal and why. So not like the best food you've ever eaten in your life that one time that you were like in Paris, but like something that... Um, is like heartwarming and meaningful to you Um, a favorite meal that you could just eat again and again and again so go ahead and do that (laughs) i'll give you like five minutes all right hey guys i'm going to give you just uh 30 to 60 more seconds so keep going Okay, I want to hear now, what are some of y'all's favorite foods, favorite meals, and why? Anybody want to share? Real quick. Nobody? Come on. I'm going to share mine in a minute. You guys got to help me out here. This is interactive. I don't like just standing up here talking. I need you to engage with me. So, okay, Chauncey. French toast. French toast. Yeah, ooh, French toast and blueberries and ice cream. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Memories, big part of food. Okay, anybody
1: else?
0: Mexican food. Mexican food, yep. Why? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah, we had Chipotle at our wedding. I think we shared that in our, that was, yep. (laughs) Well, okay, I'm going to share with you guys a little bit about my favorite food. Eggs Benedict. Did it show up? Nope, there we go. Eggs Benedict. So my favorite food in the whole world is actually mashed potatoes and gravy. Brian was just talking about how I'm totally a meat and potatoes girl, 100%. Um, But when I'm talking about favorite meals, eggs Benedict for sure. Um, And really, it's in combination with what's called polacinta. If any of you guys know what polacinta is, I'd be really surprised. But um, it's basically Hungarian crepes. My mom's side of the family is Hungarian. And um, so polacinta, we make them like blintzes. So we make homemade crepes and fill them with some awesome cream cheese filling and then drizzle it with some homemade berry syrup. It is awesome. And we eat that with Eggs Benedict on holidays and like special occasions. I love hollandaise sauce. Of course, I mean, I was talking about butter earlier. You can't make hollandaise without butter, right? So there you go. Um, (laughs) But I remember growing up, my dad, he always used to make brunch on Easter for our entire church congregation of about 200 people. And one year, he was like, why don't we make Eggs Benedict for everybody? And decided to make hollandaise from scratch. And if any of you guys know (laughs) that hollandaise doesn't actually come from the packet that you buy at the store, Um, It's actually a very laborious, tedious process. Um, And so as I was kind of studying for this this morning, I came across this book called The Spirit of Food. Um, And it is 34 different writers contributing uh, just kind of stories about food and the meal. And it's a very theological perspective on it, and it's fantastic. And there's this guy. His name is Chef Fred Raynaud. And he wrote um, this essay in the book, and it's called In Praise of Hollandaise. So obviously, (laughs) I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh, this is my kind of man. Um, So I just kind of want to read this to you because it's a really sweet theological and incarnational picture um, of food. So it's kind of long. Bear with me, but it's worth it. So just engage with this because it's really fun. So he says, um, the Hollandaise is a picture that gives you a glimpse into the mystery of the universe, and here's why. He said, let's take a deeper look at the preparation of this sauce starting with the age-old problem of incompatibility. Oil and water simply don't mix. This dilemma parallels a problem that has plagued creation since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It is the curse, eternal separation between God and humanity. Because of the curse, humanity was expelled from the presence of God and an eternal void entered into the heart of man. God and humanity had become two unequally yoked entities, two substances that repelled each other. Like acid and oil in our hollandaise, they were separated and in need of a mediator, an emulsifier to unite God and man. He calls hollandaise the holy emulsifier. And so so the emulsifier is egg yolk. He says an egg is a truly remarkable thing. In its simplest definition, the egg consists of three parts, the white, the yolk, and the shell. The egg can be compared to the Godhead, and in this analogy, the yolk is clearly the son of God. In the first step toward making hollandaise, which is also the first step toward redemption, the shell is cracked and broken open, and the yoke is separated from its rightful place. The yoke is tossed into a cold stainless steel bowl. Lonely and isolated, with one mission in mind, the yoke must unite two substances that chemically cannot be united, our sinful nature with a holy God. In order to do this, the yoke must endure terrible suffering. The creator of the sauce places the stainless steel bowl over hot, simmering water. The creator then adds a vinegar mixture to the yolk, pulls out a wire whip, and begins to beat the egg yolk, breaking its skin. The heat of the water intensifies, and the yolk begins to cook under turbulence and torture as the whip moves until there is no form or life left in the yolk. And then, at just the right moment, the creator of the sauce removes the bowl from the boiling water and begins to whip in the warm butter, the oil of God. Suddenly, as if by a miracle, an emulsion begins to take place. The yoke that was once dead comes back to life. The acidic mixture, once separated from the presence of oil, is now united by the work of our mediator, Jesus. What a sweet picture of the incarnation in hollandaise sauce, of all things. Love it. (laughs) I just love this because it's talking about how the yoke, Jesus, leaves its home, leaves its union with God. I mean, he's still unified to God. and then enters into our messy world, right? That's the incarnation. And I want to talk about how the table is itself incarnational, but first I want to read this quote to kind of get us thinking in that direction. Uh, Brian actually shared this. Um, It's from Glenn's Discover the Mystery of Faith. Um, And I just love this, so I'm going to read it again. Uh, And I know it's a lot of words on the slide, and you're not supposed to do this when you're using PowerPoint, but I want you guys to see it and hear it, okay? Glenn says, there's something about a meal. It is the simplest and most common human practice. It is born, of course, of necessity. If we are to live, we must eat. And yet, a meal is so much more than sustenance. A carefully prepared meal requires that the cook choose each ingredient deliberately. A meal prepared for others, prepared with others, and enjoyed with others is a spiritual experience. The ordinary stuff of food and drink becomes a symbol of the joy we feel a mile marker of moments in our lives, just like we were talking about, how food is so tied to memories. When there's an occasion to celebrate, a birthday, an anniversary, a wedding, a raise, a successful endeavor of any kind, a meal is often the way we do it. When the people of Israel wanted to remember and celebrate God's greatest act of deliverance in their nation's history, they didn't preach long sermons or expound on theological ramifications of the day. They shared a meal. N.T. Wright cheekily remarked that Jesus, in speaking of his death, did not give us an atonement theory. He gave us a meal. So, let's talk about incarnation in the common table. What do I mean by incarnation? I think we've all heard this word, but just to kind of clarify, I'm talking about what is happening in John 1. And John 1 is probably my favorite passage in all of scripture because it's talking directly about the incarnation, which gets me every time. I just am amazed that the Lord would decide to become human um, and understand what it's like to be one of us. So John 1:14 tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God in a man. God entering our messy world. That's what the Incarnation is, right? So incarnation comes from the Latin "incarnate," It means "in flesh," or "in meat." Like carne asada, right? Colossians 1.15, <laughs> there you go, right? That's for my husband. Um, Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus gives us a picture of who God is by coming down, becoming one of us, God becoming man. We call it God in the bod in young life. Um, and I always thought that was kind of awkward, but it's funny. Um <laughs> So there's this, um, this Orthodox theologian. His name is Andrew, Andrew Schmieman. <laughs> and um, Orthodox theology on the Incarnation is kind of cool, but he's also a chef. And so he writes this. And I know I'm throwing lots of quotes at you, but they're just so good. I had to throw them in here. He says, Since God has created the world as food for us and has given us food as means of communion with him, of life in him, the new food of the new life which re- we receive from God in his kingdom is Christ himself. He is our bread. Because from the very beginning, all our hunger was a hunger from him, and all our bread was but a symbol of him, a symbol that had to become reality. He became man and lived in this world. He ate and drank, and this means that the world of which he partook, the very food of our world, became his body, his life. But his life was totally, absolutely Eucharistic. All of it was transformed into communion with God, and all of it ascends into heaven. And now he shares this glorified life with us, what I have done alone, I give it now to you. Take and eat. Jesus is the bread of life and he is the living water, right? As the Gospel of John tells us. So Glenn, he talks about in his book, in the mystery of faith, the mystery of faith is really Jesus himself. Um, and then I'd like to take that a little step further because later on in Colossians 1 and verse 27, it talks about how the great mystery of our faith including Gentiles, is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us. So the coolest thing about the incarnation is not just that it's God becoming man, but now it's Christ in us, and us entering the world of each other and fleshing out what it means to be the body of Christ. And the common table is just one of the sweetest ways that we can do that, and entering into relationship with one another. Any thoughts on that before I keep moving? No? Is everybody tracking with me how... The meal is incarnational because we're, we're building relationship. The meal is centered around relationship. It's centered around community. centered around us. All coming to the same level together and breaking bread together. And so from Jesus becoming human to us entering one another's worlds. Um, hopefully that makes sense to you. Okay, the second thing that I want to talk about as far as table fellowship. So it's incarnational, right? It's also sacrificial and it's generous. And... This is the best word I could find to fully <laughs> describe what it is that, um, that I kind of want to articulate here in the next couple minutes. And what I want us to think about is that preparing a meal for somebody or for a group of people is costly, as it should be. It takes time, it takes money, it takes energy, it takes planning. Um, and so it should cost us something. If Jesus is willing to break his body in order for us to know what it is to be united with God, and we want to be united to one another, um, creating a space for fellowship should be costly. But here's the cool thing, is that it should be done out of a position of gratitude. We don't have to um, do this out of a place of obligation or duty. Um, and I wanted to share this other quote with you. Um, Amanda DeWitt is also another, well, she wrote in another book called Crave. This is another great book. If you guys are fans of Shana Nequist, she and some other friends contributed to this book, and it's a bunch of writing about food again. Um, you can sense a trend in my reading recently. Um, so she writes, as we acknowledge the giver, we're moved to share his gifts. We recognize that God gives our paychecks and fills our fridge. We respond to his provision by opening our homes and setting the table. Such acts of hospitality and shared meals fill the pages of Christian history. Open-handedness has always marked God's people. Right? So how many of you guys are actually meal group leaders in the congregation? How many of you attend meal groups? (laughs) How many of you would say open-handedness is a big part of that? Uh, Absolutely, you're opening your homes, you're bringing food together. Hopefully you're all contributing to the meal in some way at some point. But um, open-handedness has always marked God's people. I just love that. Um, But this isn't, guys, this isn't about impressing each other with, like, Pinterest perfect recipes and table settings. Like, we live in a world now where if you don't Instagram food, like, did you really eat it? Or, you know, we're all, like, scanning through Pinterest recipes trying to find the perfect thing for Thanksgiving, for whatever. And we're trying to impress one another all the time. And it's just ridiculous. This isn't what it's about. It's fun because you can get cool ideas. But I, I am encouraging you guys if we're talking about the common table, we're talking about fellowship. And if I'm going to actually say and encourage you to think about maybe doing this for some people, not just Thanksgiving, um, but later on into the future. And you, I mean, it's such a sweet place for us to gather together and to get to know one another. Um, if you're going to do this, if you're going to invite people into your home and break bread together, resist the urge to make it about impressing people. This is what Shauna Aniqua says in Bread and Wine. And this is a great book. If you guys haven't actually read it, it's not like Stanley Hauerwas, but is awesome. So she says, What people are craving isn't perfection. People aren't longing to be impressed. They're longing to feel like they're home. If you, if you create a space full of love and character and creativity and soul, they'll take off their shoes and curl up with gratitude and rest, no matter how small, no matter how undone, no matter, no matter how odd. So the sacrifice and the generosity involved in the common table is about creating a space for people to belong. Creating a space for people to feel known and loved. That's what this is about. And that's why I think Glenn and Evan and Joey and everybody on staff here at New Life Downtown are so passionate about meal groups. We're supposed to be trying to find ways, trying to find ways to be known and to be loved. Okay, so here is where it gets a little tricky. As I'm studying the New Testament about the common table... Um, the question generally arises, um, who are we supposed to be inviting to our tables? And Jesus is pretty clear. Um, And he talks in Luke 14, 12 through 14. He's been invited to a Pharisee's home. And they start asking him questions about why he's eating with these people and these people. Um, And Jesus is like, hey, if you're going to throw a banquet, don't invite all of your best friends and your family and all of these other people that you know already so that later then they can invite you over and repay you. Um, You're supposed to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. We're supposed to be inviting people in who are on the outside because that's what Jesus did. So think with me for a minute. Who are the people that Jesus actually encountered when he was eating a meal? Um, There are so many stories all over the Gospels of Jesus and food and people. Any thoughts arise as you're thinking through the kind of people that Jesus interacted with when it came to food? You don't have to answer. Just think about it. That'll be a rhetorical question. Um, Eric Bonkowski also contributes to the book Crave, and he says that it's not just what we eat, but who we eat with that matters to God. And his essay has been really challenging to me and because he's, he talked about how um, millennials were like flocking back to urban centers and cities because basically we're looking for places to eat together and to have community together. Forget shopping at cool boutiques. We actually want to go to places like the Wild Goose. Um, And that's not a pitch for the Wild Goose, but it is a great place. Um, (laughs) And so he's talking. he talks in his essay. He's like, man, what would happen if we all started to change our perspective on what it is to eat together and started thinking about how to feed everyone in our communities well? Um, and, And that means going after the people who are homeless down the street. I mean, we're here downtown. They're all over the place. That means looking for people who are on the outside who don't have a place to belong. Brianna's going to share a little bit about what that's looked like for her. Um, But we ought to have eyes for those people if we're following Christ. We ought to. Those are the people that Jesus ate with, right? Um, And so here's kind of the cool part. Um, Not just looking at the Gospels and who Jesus ate with, but what's happening in the early church when it comes to the common table. Um, when we look at Acts 2, through 47, it's talking about the disciples and the early church gathering together. It says, Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. The very idea an action of sharing food and sharing one another's lives and resources and everything that you have with each other is going to grow the kingdom. That's just reality, and that's powerful to me. And this is so challenging to me. Like, this isn't easy for me to think, okay, I'm going to go down the street and invite a bunch of homeless people over to my in-law's house and, (laughs) you know, and serve them a meal. Like, that's uncomfortable. But if we're really entering into this table fellowship thing, it ought to be uncomfortable a little bit, right? And here's the cool thing. I was reading this. this is, a lot of this is coming from this essay that this woman wrote um, in a theological journal. And she says that giving abundantly to those who can't repay you is actually going to teach you to love giving abundantly. I'm not going to be up here preaching to you about how if you give and give and give and do this cool thing for somebody else, then God's going to bless you because that's silly. <laughs> that's not what it's about. But your heart's going to change. If you're opening your home to people who need a place to belong and giving them something to eat, you're going to love doing that. And your heart's going to change and want to do that more and more and more. And like I just mentioned, inviting the outsider is so central to New Testament fellowship. So those are a lot of scattered thoughts (laughs) on um, how table fellowship is sacrificial and generous, but I hope it's getting your wheels turning and causing you to think a little bit more broadly about the purpose of the meal and the purpose of table fellowship um, for us is the kingdom of God. Any questions, any thoughts? Anyone wants to interject? Yeah. About that yeah. Yeah, sure. Love to. Let's go find that. Okay. Here we go. Fantastic question. <laughs> okay, let me help me articulate this a little better. So, your question is um, can we take this a little too far? Can we idolize it essentially? Um, giving to others, can we idolize? Um, well, I mean, even something simple, just food itself, can we idolize that? I think that the reality is in our culture, that is a huge <laughs> tendency um, because I think it comes down to performance and it comes down to. Um, really individualistic thinking um but i man you got my wheels turning that's great what do you think let me ask you that (laughs) that doesn't mean i'm an expert i'm only 29 years old i don't know i'm learning with you (laughs) um but thank you for that question that was that was great this is why i love sunday school um Yeah, yep, well that's, that's incarnational right there, that's what Jesus did, so that's beautiful for sure. Um, thank you guys, this is fun. Okay, where are we at here? Um, all right, so I've been talking a lot, I know all of you guys have more thoughts you want to share, but I want to, I want to ask you before we kind of dive into this last point about table fellowship being communal and also formational those two kind of happen together um Brian was sharing with me something that he was coming across um when he was reading um I can't remember where it was from babe but he was talking about how we could learn pretty pretty much everything we need to know about life at the dinner table (laughs) from like how to interact um across generations to how to respect one another to how to deal with conflict because we all know that happens at the table um you know, so we can learn so much about what it is to be human, to be um, in community, to be alive um, at the dinner table. And I just love that. But anybody have any thoughts on how table fellowship, how the meal is communal, and then also how it's formational for us? Not just as Christians, but in general. Yeah. Yeah, ooh. They wouldn't have talked. The meal would have been nothing if you're not engaging with one another in conversation, is the meal still is valuable. That's a great thought. Yeah. 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 Meal traditions are so they're so great. That's awesome. Stuff to take into your own family. For sure. I like that. I might steal that, actually. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. There's, I actually have a slide that kind of touches on that. Um, there's a study that the Hartman Group did that found that nearly half of all adult meals now are eaten alone. Is that not insane? <laughs> That's nuts to me, growing up in a family where we ate most of our meals together. and then But I think back to like my most recent um, single days, and I ate a lot of meals alone, too. Um, and that's, man, that's a shame. There's actually a study that. So, um, who is it? That is it, Leonard Sweet, who just wrote this book that hasn't been published yet. <laughs> you to read them. Yeah, you should read I've the been stats. Searching. From tablet to table. Yeah, Leonard Sweet. crazy. The meal matters, clearly. And the crazy thing is that we don't get enough of it in our culture. We're eating meals alone. Um, I I shared a few weeks ago about how at Young Life Camp, one of the things that we really work hard to do is to create family-style dinners and meals for kids when they're at camp because they just aren't getting that at home anymore. They don't even know what it means to sit down at a table and to pass a platter of food to the next person beside them. Um, and to have conversation around the table, and so we want to provide that for them because it's so important. It's so formational um, to who we are. So thanks for finding those. I was going to ask you about that earlier and forgot. <laughs> um, any other thoughts? Yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: yep. Uh, so, isn't this a
0: fascinating story of where God created us with that need? It was not post, you know, post fall of all. That no. That's a great point that our need for food isn't post fall, that it's part of who we are, part of how God formed us and created us. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been concurring in my mind that not all wheels are oriented towards the
1: same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um vegan remain in my house and he's always so full, high of energy because he eats about fifteen servings of fruit day and he never has a major sugar high and then draw. Um whereas on Thanksgiving it might be appropriate. If you're just gonna
0: be watching football it might be trip to Thancoma. Very true. Yes, sometimes food is just for refueling. (laughs) It's true. Um, But I love what you were touching on. What's your name? Steve. Thanks, Steve, for talking about that because that's one of the things I wanted to talk about when it comes to food being and the meal being communal um, is the idea of that eschatological hope. Eschatos being Greek for last um, and eschatology being the study of the last days. Really, it has a lot to do with, you know, the end times. Um, But this eschatological hope of the wedding banquet. Um, food isn't just for us here and now. It's something we're going to share together um, with the entire kingdom uh, one day. I love that. This is what Stephen and Karen Baldwin share. And then um, I'm going to have Brianna come up and share her story. But They say, Table fellowship is a foretaste of the redemption when Christ's finished work culminates in the wedding feast of the Lamb, at which we will sit and enjoy the finest friends, good aged wine, and the best foods. So fantastic. Okay. So... Um, but here's kind of the reality, and we touched a little bit on this. Food and the meal is not always a safe place for us. Sometimes it's attached to brokenness, it's attached to disease, it's attached to disordered self image, um, all kinds of things. Um, but I really, really wanted Brianna to share her story because um, she has gone through quite a crazy journey in the last few years. And so, Brianna, why don't you come on up and you can grab the mic. Um, She's just going to share a little bit with you guys about um, what that's looked like for her, and I'll let her kind of dive into that. Um, but then how joining the New Life Downtown community has been for her, where the Lord's Table and the Common Table are so central to our community. So, all right, Bree. Well,
2: I'm super honored to be here. Um, I'm just going to give a little history on me for a nutshell about three years of my life. About three years ago, I was diagnosed with a stomach motility disorder called gastroparesis, um, where the um, ability for my stomach to empty its contents was significantly delayed. The average person is about 40 to 90 minutes, and mine was over five hours. So in the beginning, it was hard, but it was manageable. I had a low-fat, low-fiber diet. I was essentially forced to be very healthy. I was like, okay, this will work. Last spring, I got really sick with um, an infection, and it shocked my system, to where I was forced to be on an all-liquid diet. Um, That was the beginning of a very painful journey, where it was my last year of college. I want to go out and have fun with my friends, and eat, and have fun, and that was starting to be a very painful journey. I no longer felt welcome, very uncomfortable. I couldn't go out and really have fun in these places that I used to, and food was always on my mind, always feeling sick and not really understanding if this is going to get better, if it's going to get worse, why is this happening? January of this year is when things kind of took a significant turn for the worst. Um, my stomach no longer decided it wanted to work, so I could no longer tolerate any liquids or solids. I was on IV nutrition for 14 hours a day to keep up with the daily nutritional needs that I needed, as well as the liquids that I needed. Um, so I was hospitalized in and out for seven months. In May I had a feeding tube, because my physicians didn't want my intestines to lose its motility. And that was the hard part of, how did this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? And You know, I'm so young. I just graduated college. Where is my community? Where is my family? Um, How can I really participate in society when I'm pretty much living in a hospital? Um, Fortunately, (laughs) God heard the prayers of me and many people, and my surgeon found what was wrong and was able to essentially give me the ability to eat again. Um, That surgery happened in June, and so I've been working on eating, you know, liquids and then soft foods. And so food to me is now kind of a painful thing. Um, But it's good. It's really encouraging. But in January, the first time I got out of the hospital, came to church and was super excited to be out and to kind of join society. Well, halfway through service, I realized, oh my gosh, we take communion. I can't take communion. And so... I initially wanted to leave because I didn't know if I should leave or if I should stay, if people are going to judge me if I can't take the food, you know, the bread and dip it. Am I still able to participate in communion or is it only a physical act? So I decided to stay, and with tears in my eyes, I went up and I walked through and I came back and I just broke down. But then God showed me how to have communion with Him that wasn't food centered. And that was really amazing, to just take the body of Christ and have it mean something more than just a piece of bread. And his blood was something more powerful, more intimate. And I really had to dive into that. My next (laughs) concern was, well, where am I going to find community? Because a lot of my friends had left because it was an inconvenience for them. I could no longer participate really in the fun activities that... The, you know, your 20s are supposed to be around. But I didn't want to go to a meal group. I felt very isolated, very alone. But fortunately, I found the Thursday Thursday group, which is not meal centered. And they were totally carried me through the seven months that were really painful and really lonely for me. And without that, I couldn't be where I am now. And so it's so important to find time to just have that community with people and to know their, their heart because how are we going to know that there's people like me in the congregation when it's all about food and all about making everything? But what about those who can't eat or can't physically participate in the groups that we're offering? Where do we meet those people and how do we welcome them into the table? Mm-hmm. And that's where my heart is finding those people and opening those doors and having a safe place that may not be the table. That's a very painful thing for me, to participate in meal groups. I feel very, all eyes are on me, because I have three pieces of cheese and three pieces of crackers, because I know that's safe. Where the person next to me has an entire mountain of food, and I'm like, (laughs) ha, that must be nice. You know, and it's very self-conscious for me. but it's been an amazing journey, very painful, and, but that's what the community is for, is crying together and laughing together and rejoicing when <laughs> I was able to eat baby food at 26 years old. That was a huge milestone for me. I never thought that, but I was so excited, and the community was excited for me and laughed with me, and they met me where I was, and that is what helped me. They didn't try to fix me. They didn't try to heal me. They prayed for a miracle and kept believing, and they met me where I was. Just mm. wrong broken, and then it was amazing to see the answer to prayer. Not at all how I thought it was going to be, but it happened. I didn't think I was ever going to be healed, and
0: I was, and I'm so blessed. And that's my little story. <laughs> <nutshell>. <laughs> Thanks, Bree. Does anybody have any questions for her? Um, what her journey has been like. She's been learning how to eat in community again, which is tough. really wanted Brie to share because this is a one step in the healing process for her too but also because um, we need to be willing to invite people to our tables that um, can't necessarily participate in the same way so yeah Chauncey
2: It's interesting because you find out the ways that people try to encourage you, which actually discourages you. Um, and I, at first, it was just the constant monitoring of, so you're healed. So do you want to go like get dinner? Or its what can you eat? And it's like, well, I can't quite get to that phase yet. Um, but it was them recognizing that I could eat, and that was encouraging, but it was... Something that really helps me is eating with me, but not feeling like they're watching me eat hmm. um, or judging my reaction to foods. But knowing like my safe food and then maybe eating the same size meal or the same boring <laughs> yogurt food <laughs> or you know whatever. <laughs> It is, but just not feeling like all eyes are on me because that's something that I struggle with that I just feel like I'm being watched all the time. And it's probably not true, but it's just food to me means so much more than it's a painful experience for me most of the time. And it's not something that I enjoy doing. Like my world is very consumed by food, but it's, am I going to get sick from this? Am I going to... Is this going to work? Is today a good day or a bad day? And I think it's just for me just being sensitive to those and just not constantly asking and asking and asking, but just eating and having fun and having conversations like I'm one of them. Um, But people are curious like, are you not hungry? Like, why aren't you eating? So then, oh, I'm not hungry. I ate before. Or, you know, just to, to dismiss it. But And I've had to understand that's how people show concern um, for me, so I'm learning that patience. But did that answer your question? Kind of in a roundabout way. All
0: right. Any other questions? Thank you so much. (laughs) So, so much for that. Um, It's a lot of bravery, yeah. Um, Well, we're coming to the end of our time. Does anybody else have any thoughts they want to throw out um, before I pray for us? Yeah. Just uh, another comment. I, was raised overseas.
1: So I'm a little bit and i with, I guess, about a lot of the, like, the latest old crazy about security. Hmm.
0: Absolutely. Welcoming the stranger. It's huge. Yeah? I guess a question. Fantastic question. <laughs> His question was, okay, how do we do this now? <laughs> how do we uh, invite people to the table? Do we focus more on gathering together as believers? Do we invite the stranger? Um, how do we live this out practically? And I purposely didn't want to go there other than to just kind of point towards, okay, here's what happened in Acts when the believers gathered together. People were drawn to them. Um, here's the way that Jesus interacted with people. Um, And that's why I wanted us to take a look at the feeding miracle, um, and we didn't have time, so I encourage you guys to go check that out in Matthew 14 and think through that. Um, But maybe we can address that in our final week. Um, But Did you have something you wanted to say? (laughs) Okay, Brian's going to add a thought.
1: closest disciples, but then there are also other settings where he uh, provided centers and acts. Absolutely. And then he invited 5,000 people to dinner at the night, uh, there were different times and different contexts, and that's healthy, and it actually goes back to your question of, you know, what happens if we did spiritually spiritual effect, uh, we just began, when you Church, I used to be a part of um, on Saturday. Our lead pastor was huge on evangelism, and that was his always hard on that. So, we took permission to this in Germany every year. And beforehand, we would put together these spits so we could go out on the streets in Germany and do a gospel piece, and be in a spit and uh, proclaim the gospel. And if any of you have seen, In life. You go to other countries and some people really... So I love mm-hmm. the past Every day and meals, and every day not So the became a place to take and
0: There's a quote that I came across that I didn't throw in here, but this guy, Michael Pollan, or not Michael Pollan, sorry, Tim Chester, he's a UK um, pastor. He wrote about how um, food and the table doesn't, um, doesn't create community necessarily. Uh, Jesus does that. <laughs> but it sets the table for that to happen. Um, and you can't really talk about the gospel without talking about or without running into a meal. And so really, I guess the best way to go is to just start simply. Um, And I I think that's one of the reasons I love Shawna Nyquist's book, Bread and Wine, is because she's like, just order some pizza and have some packaged salad and invite whoever you want over and see what happens. And it doesn't have to be believers. It doesn't have to be an evangelism (laughs) model. It can just be getting people together and seeing what happens and then seeing how the Lord forms community um, in the midst of that. So that's something that Jake and Chauncey are doing, which is really cool uh, in their meal group because not everybody coming knows Jesus, right? Yeah, so that's awesome. All right, any other thoughts? Thank you for asking that, though. (laughs) I deliberately didn't want to do that. I'm not like, here's how to to use the meal as a ministry tool. I wanted you guys to just kind of ruminate on that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. Keep doing it. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then church starts in about 25 minutes. So thanks for listening. Um, Father, we just thank you for, um, well, we're just thankful. Thanksgiving is around the corner um, that we have what we have um, and that you are at work in our lives. And Father, we just are amazed at the way that you use the meal. As such a centerpiece of, um, of what it is to be a follower of Christ and what it is to be a part of the kingdom of God, and God, I just ask that we would leave here today encouraged, refreshed, maybe inspired, um, but also just excited for um, time to sit uh, together with our communities, with our families, with our loved ones, and um, and to be together and to let fellowship happen. And uh, God, we just ask that you'd give us desire to reach out to the outsider, to the lost. Um, to someone who doesn't necessarily have this. Um, God, we love you. Would you just bless us in your name? Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great Sunday. What? Oh, sorry, yeah, announcement. Uh, We are not going to do a final fourth or fifth Sunday. Oh, sorry, yeah, okay. So next week we're not meeting for Sunday school because it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, so a lot of you guys are out of town. Enjoy time with family. And we're still debating on whether or not we want to do a final Sunday to just kind of wrap up some of these thoughts. Um, and I think we'll kind of decide on that. But if you guys have any, um, any ideas or questions that have been popping up, email Evan and he can send them to us. And maybe we can kind of touch on those in the final week. Um, otherwise, we'll just skip that one too. So thanks. Thanks.